Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, John chapter 2. We have been looking at a study on the apostles and taking the last couple of weeks at looking at the Lord's calling of them and then the, how they met the Master, His calling the Twelve to Himself. This evening I want us to see the, the molding that is taking place by them being in His company and understanding that I think there's a lot we can learn from these individuals that would encourage us in serving the Lord in ministry. They're, they're common men. They, they're common men with an exceptional calling. Uh, they were ordinary, and as we had mentioned, we looked at the, their background. Um, some of them were fishermen. Some of them we really don't know. They may have been craftsmen or tradesmen, but we do know that, that none of them were Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, or scholars. They, they came from an agricultural area. And, and we see this developing. And so we, we saw how the Lord, how five of them met the Master. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in the first chapter of the Gospel of John through the preaching of the word, through the concern of a family member, through the, the compassion of a friend, and, and then the Lord's providential working and recognizing that. And then last week, we, we saw the various stages, and we took a few, a little bit and looked at these stages of belief that comes as they come to know the Lord, they trust Him as, as their Savior, and that precedes service, the, the growing conviction of, of His power, of who He is, the apostolic call and we considered that last week and then ultimately the the final stage was that that of martyrdom that they they knew the fellowship of his suffering as Paul speaks of and we we considered that aspect and we concluded by seeing that the Lord states there were a couple of reasons for which he called them mark mark 3 says that when he appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach in the specific areas that are, that are set apart by the word that. That they would be in company with him. That they would have that companionship and then that he would be able to com commission them and send them forth. That they would go forth into ministry. What I want us to consider this evening, though, is, is really going back and probably primarily in this step, that of, of the growing conviction and awareness of who he was, that as they spend time with him, that there is a growing understanding of, of who he is. It's almost like this guided discovery learning. That the Lord is going to lead them along in developing an understanding of who He is. That, and, and recognizing that this training begins within a few days of when they come to know Him. And, and the significance of His person uh, being impressed upon them and that introduction then into ministry. And what I want us to consider this evening are, are four events, four, four specific, you know, specific snapshots that show this, that they're introduced to Christ's deity. They, they have impressed upon them his authority. He involves them in, in ministry and in service. And then he gives instruction 
as to the importance of harvest. And recognizing that this, this growing relationship, that as they are following Christ, that, that it's not just enough to know the facts, but he's going to involve them in these various aspects. These men had responded to the call. And, and we see how this develops and that, that molding begins very early. In fact, we see that in John chapter 2 because the first thing we see in, in this aspect as they are introduced to his deity is here in the second chapter. We're familiar with this. If you'll look with me at verse, verse 1 of John 2, it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now we've looked at this passage. We, we looked at this passage on Mother's Day. We considered the, the words of, of Mary as she comes to Jesus. She's asking him to do something and recognizing this is the first miracle. But I want us to consider it because it, the link in the chronology it says on the third day. Third day after what? Well, what preceded that? And it goes back to chapter 1, verse 43, when the Lord called Philip and Nathaniel. The, the day following. So we, our, our, our timeline begins back in chapter 1, and it's the call of Philip and Nathaniel. And so we're seeing how this is beginning. And so this training, when I say it begins almost immediately, they come, they meet the Lord. We saw these five in chapter one who meet the Lord. And now we're, we're marking the time based on that. That is, these are now spending time with him. And, and our Lord is going to train them. He's going to develop them. They're going to be involved in ministry. And, and recognizing how the Lord works. And I, I, I find it interesting because it, it's, it's a fascinating aspect to see God directs their path. You know, we, were, we were talking recently, I was talking with Pastor Brian and, and Debbie Miller, and they, they, they made a comment about my background. They said, well, you've been a youth pastor and a pastor and a college president. And I said, yeah, I, I just don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> and I said, but as I thought about that later, I thought, you know, it's interesting to see how the Lord used those things in preparation in my life. And as even my coming out to be the, the president of the college, my, when, I was in, when I was in college and working on my master's degree, it was really with the mindset that I was planning to be involved in college ministry. That was going to be my, my ministry, and that's where I planned to go. And I was involved with a, a ministry at Clemson University. We were doing outreach, we were doing Bible studies, and I, I really thought that was where the Lord was going to have me. And then the Lord redirected. And, and part of it was the organization I was working with when I realized they didn't have a biblical understanding of the local church. So what we're considering in the morning, I said, you know, this, the church is God's plan. And I, I'm fine working with an organization that will be facilitating that and working with local churches. But I, as I talked with the director at that time, his philosophy was the church is here to help us. And I said, no, you're here to help the church. And, and I, the more I learned of that, I thought, I can't be involved in that. And, and so I thought, well, that was just the Lord's work in that, but that was part of then when I came out to be the college president and seeing how God works. And so he's bringing them with him. And there's a purpose that is taking place. And I, I think it's wise for us to realize we can trust the Lord's plan. And so Mary comes to him and says, look, they, they've run out of wine and... and, and the Lord responds, woman, you know, what does your concern have to do with me? 
my hour has not yet come. That's verse 4. Now, I, as I mentioned several months ago, I do wonder if in Mary's mind there wasn't more, there was almost an anticipation that now Jesus will reveal who he really is. Because realize, for 30 years she has lived under a cloud. That there has been that suspicion concerning the conception of Jesus. And Jesus will be confronted with that. As the hostility toward him increases, we were not born of fornication, is one of the accusations. Well, Mary has lived under that cloud. And, and the stigma of that, she knew his identity. She knew that this was unique, that this was of God, that, that this was the work of the Holy Spirit. But fleshly humanity could only interpret the circumstances through the eyes of sin. So what do they think? That something immoral had taken place. And it's totally untrue, and she doesn't deserve the shame, but she still has felt it. And I really do wonder if she felt like this is now a chance for me to be vindicated. That if he will show that, that miraculous power, and yet Jesus says, my time has not yet come for the public manifestation of his deity. In fact, it's not until John chapter 17, verse 1, that Jesus makes that last reference to his hour and it's, it's to the Father, he says, the hour is come, glorify your Son. And that, that will then take place. But in, in verse 5, Mary says, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. These are the last recorded words of Mary that we have in the Bible. And it shows her confidence in Christ and encouraging others to be obedient to him. And so as we're familiar with the, the story, the situation, Jesus tells the, the, the servants that are there to fill these pots of water. They, they would each hold between 8 to 12 gallons. And, and so, you know, or each firkin, 2 to 3, would be between 8 to 12 gallons. The pots, you know, we're, we're talking in the neighborhood of 20 to 35 gallons and there's six of them there's a lot of water and they fill these so that's not a small task and they're filling these and you know they don't just get to stick a hose in it and run the water and then turn it off they've got to draw the water and they're drawing between one and two hundred gallons of water and and then Jesus says okay now take it to the head waiter it's like it's it's water and when they draw it out, they realize the miracle that has, has taken place. And it says in verse 9 that when the, the master of the feast tasted the water that was made wine, and did not know where it came from, and then there's the parentheses there. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. And of course, the master of the feast calls for the bridegroom, and he says, most people, they serve the best first, and you've saved the best for last. But, but as you read this passage, it, the, the miracle is almost presented as a by the way. They drew the, the water that had turned to wine. And, and the master doesn't know what's happened, and then the, those who do are just a parenthetical statement. The, the servants knew. 
And, and there's no f- great presentation there. I mean, this first sign, this miracle, was only seen by a few servants. And who else? Well, verse 11 tells us, this is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. They're seeing what he has done. The disciples are seeing what what the Lord is doing. He's preparing them for service. The service has begun immediately. And when we understand what has taken place, this, this miracle is a miracle that impacted those servants, but especially impacted the disciples. They believe. They've been called, and now they're being introduced to his deity. That they're seeing that he is the creator, and that's his prerogative over creation. That, that he can take a simple chemical substance like water and turn it into a more complicated substance. And he didn't wave his hand. We have no rec- you know, statement that he, he did anything, he added anything, he said anything special. He just did it. He's, he's God. And, and they're recognizing that. But I, but I also think it's interesting and applicable for us. Do you realize that there was a major trauma for that married couple? And their problem, their trial, their, I mean, this wasn't just a social faux pas, social, you know, something that they, they had messed up and had, you know, not enough people RSVP'd. This was a significant problem in that community. And the turmoil they were experiencing was something that the Lord used to teach the disciples. Other people experienced trials from which the disciples learned. This, this situation had no human solution. I mean, they, these, these parents, these newlyweds, went through this trial. They, they, they had it solved, but the, it was for the benefit of the disciples that they would understand who he was. You know, we can learn from other people and what God takes them through and the trials. Not specifically, oh, that he'll do that for us, but the principles of his faithfulness, of his goodness, of his person, that he is trustworthy. That we can learn from God's working in their lives. This, this trial, the anxiety that they experienced, was not simply for them. It was for the disciples. They're the ones who believed. And understanding that sometimes our trials and the things we go through are for others. And we, we find this as parents. There are times we go through things and there are pressures. What are our kids learning? What are they observing and how we handle that? And our trust for the, in the Lord. Do we, do we pray together as a family and then share with them how God answered? And the, the importance of that, because as I've said before, our values are caught more than they're taught. They, they sense what causes us to be anxious and helping them see God's faithfulness. That when they see his place in our life and his priority in our life and recognizing that our trials may be to help others, but ultimately through this, Christ's glory is revealed in the trials. As, as the end of, of John says, the, there are many other signs that the Lord did, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Well, this is the first one that was written. This is the first one that is included in this gospel. 
And it was for that purpose, that they would believe. And we beheld his glory. The glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That marvelous prologue, introduction to this gospel. And so Jesus' glory was manifested. They were introduced to Christ's deity. The disciples believed. The second snapshot that we have, though, in these chapters is in chapter 2, where they are impressed with Christ's authority. It says in, in, in verse 12 of chapter 2, after this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So after what takes place, the, the wedding in Cana of Galilee, now they go to Capernaum. And they don't stay there very long because it's time for the Passover. So verse 13, now the Passover, the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And, and, he, and it says in verse 14, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with, with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers of money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, Jesus has come to Jerusalem. It's Passover. That's the reason he comes. He enters the temple. It is Herod's temple. This is a, this is a temple complex that had, ta- that, that had been in the building process for 46 years, and it still wasn't complete. And as it, Jesus enters the court of the Gentiles, this is where the greedy priests have set up shop. They're, it's under the guise of helping travelers. They, they've set it up saying, we're, we're here to help you. And, and yet they've, they've turned it into a, a, a marketplace. It's, it's kind of their farmer's market or their cattle market as, as they've instituted a stockyard in the, the court of the Gentiles. And, and understanding the reason for this is that, that animals are needed for the sacrifices. They, they have to have animals for sacrifice. If you're coming from a long way, it, it's difficult to transport livestock. I mean, it's hard enough to transport children. Throw in animals, and, and it's just a recipe for disaster. And so, rather than having to bring all of their own animals, they can purchase them when they get there. And so they'll be available. The problem is, if they're coming from a distance, they probably have foreign currency. And anything with, with Caesar's imprint is unclean and not going to be accepted. And so now you have to do the, the transaction. You, you have to do the currency exchange. And, and, you know, if you've ever done that in a different country, anytime you go to one of those places that is set up, you don't get the best rate. And, you know, when we were, when we were traveling, when we were in Italy, and, I, you know, I, I used a credit card, and I, I was actually impressed that I got a fairly decent rate considering what I was seeing elsewhere. And so it's like, okay, well, they didn't have that option. They didn't say, okay, is there a, you know, is there a fee for using this card if I, if I bring it? So now they have to exchange their money, then they have to buy the animals, and all of this is taking place at inflated prices. And so it really is a religious racket that has been set up. And because of this, Jesus sees what's going on, and this is the first of two cleansings of the temple. 
But there's a righteous indignation because Jesus is passionate about God's interests. And so we see this as, he, as he's overturning the tables. He's driving out the, the, the priests and those that are doing this. He's driving out the cattle. But, but notice he's not out of control because he tells them to take out the, the doves, the birds that are in cages. He's not flipping over cages. He's saying, take these things out of here. But there's a righteous indignation. And, and as he does this, it, it is not well received. They're losing income. And so they want to know, how does he have the right to do this? Look at verse 17. His disciples remembered, it is written, the zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now, they're saying, okay, where is your authority for what you're doing? And, and the dis- disciples realized the zeal was a righteous anger. But what we see is ultimately the center of Christ's authority is in his cross and resurrection. When they said, give us a sign, what was the sign? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. But he wasn't speaking of Herod's temple. He's speaking of his body. When is that going to take place? At the crucifixion. His death, burial, and resurrection. And and we see this and then it says in verse 22... Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Well, he's now bringing them to a realization of his authority, but the sign is actually going to take place later, and the center of his authority is tied to his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, give us a sign that you have the right to do this. Okay, destroy this body, and in three days I'll raise it up. That was the crucifixion and resurrection. And what we see is he had a right to do this. Jesus has a right to clean up sin. And understanding that he has a right to do that in our lives. That we have to be willing to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Are we willing? Are we desirous of that? He wants to deal with our sinful ways that we would serve him. The disciples, as they're spending time with him, are being molded to realize this is God. And he has power. He has authority to step in to the temple area, and he's upsetting the religious leadership as he's doing this. So the second thing that they're seeing as they're keeping company with him is his authority. The third one is they now are involved in ministry. And here we move into chapter 3, and we're just going to take a, a sn- verse out of that because most of chapter 3, the first part, is Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. He's a Pharisee, a man of the Pharisees, pro- possibly the leader of the Jews. He, he may have been the chief of that. And so he's coming by night. He's, he's wondering. He's got questions. And we're familiar with this. And, and he wants to come and he's asking questions. And, and we know the story as Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And he said, how can a man be born when he's old? How can this happen? Uh, Whether he's picking up on the figurative language, which is possible, 
They said, I've, I've invested my entire life in this system and in Judaism and we believe this is right and, and now you're saying, I have to start all over like an, a baby? Whether he's picking that up or not picking it up and not quite comprehending it, but we understand the, the, the application of it is you must be born again. That it, it takes that new birth to have new life. And that's predominantly what chapter 3 is talking about. The other aspect in chapter 3 is about John's baptism and his exalting of Jesus Christ as he points to Christ. So that's the majority of, of chapter 3. But I want, want to draw your attention to verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22, it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, and the parentheses, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And we see here that he's involved his disciples in ministry. There's the private meeting with Nicodemus, there's the discussion of baptism, and there we see that Jesus is baptizing. But what we find is Jesus involved his disciples in the ministry. They were baptizing. And, and they're not having to deal with the Pharisees. They're not dealing with the scribes. They're not dealing with all the religious attacks and difficulties. They're dealing with people who are, there's an excitement, people who have repented and are being baptized. And one of the things that's encouraging in ministry, and especially for young believers, is to get them involved in ministry where they're seeing the Lord work in a way like this. You know, yes, there are difficulties in ministry. And yes, there are, are challenges and hardship, but they're not dealing with that yet. I mean, the, those, kind of, those shots, those arrows are coming at Jesus. They're, they're dealing with people who are repentant and wanting to demonstrate that. And the excitement of that, the enthusiasm of that. A number of years ago, I was had been planning, a, when I was a youth pastor, I was planning a mission trip with our young people. And as we had looked at it, we, as I talked with the missionary, it was going to be a very difficult trip. It was, it was not a real receptive field. It was, uh, the, the people there you know, felt like they were full and, and needed nothing. And so it was going to be a challenge. It wasn't going to be open to the gospel. And I thought, this is not going to be a good trip for our young people. It's a needy field. But my purpose in going on this trip isn't just to help the missionaries, it's to, it's to give our kids a taste for missions and an excitement of that. And as we talked with the missionary, it wasn't, it, there were a number of things that just, it wasn't going to work. That was one of the pieces. And so I, I said, I need to find a different field. And I talked with a friend of mine and we ended up going on a, a mission trip. We, we actually ended up going to the Bahamas. It's like, yeah, right. But there was a great opportunity he knew of a church down there. They had us come and do a vacation Bible school. We did an outreach with the teens. And there was a real receptiveness among the people there. And we were helping that church. But it's a, I want it to be something that encourages my young people for ministry. Well, that's what we see with the disciples here. They're, they're involved and they're, in, they're being part of something that's exciting. They're baptizing. They're seeing the fruit of, of repentance taking place. 
And what we're, we're seeing, the Lord is involving them. Christ's ministry was being accomplished by their serving. And the same thing happens for us. You know, what we do, we do for Christ. It says that, that Christ was baptizing, but then it says, but he didn't actually do the baptizing. The disciples did. So how is it that Christ is doing it? Because they're doing it for him. It's, it's in Christ. And the value of that in understanding, I think this is a vital lesson for us, that, that Christ's ministry is accomplished through our serving. Sometimes, you know, we want to say, well, Lord, look what I did for you. And it's actually Jesus said, no, look what I did through you. And therefore, we have to be willing. We have to be available. We have to be faithful. And recognizing that if, if we don't serve, that it's not going to get done. That, that the Lord is using us. That, that his ministry is our service. And so in Mark chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus said, Whoever gives a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, you shall not lose your reward. In John 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he said, without me, you can do nothing. So, so we are bringing forth fruit because we are serving the Lord. His ministry is our service. We're, we're placed into, as we talked about this morning, one body. But we're the members. And so the members are, need to be working for the ministry to get done. And we considered that aspect, and as we looked at 1 Corinthians 12, because that expands on it, and sometimes there are, you know, sometimes you hear this, well, you know, well, if God wants it done, it will happen. Now, if God ordains the result, he also ordains the means. And beware of any theological system that makes us comfortable with disobedience or justifies or condones an unbiblical response. That is a wrong theology. And what we see is that we have the opportunity to serve and the responsibility to be faithful that understanding the importance and there's one more situation that I want us to look at this evening that I think helps in the preparation for the disciples and really ought to encourage us as well and that is the instruction concerning the harvest in John chapter 4 if you look again at verse 27 it says that, well at, before that we saw that he's he's leaving there and then it says in verse 4 I read verse 3. Verse 4 said, they, do, they left Judea, departed for Galilee, verse 4, but he needed to go through Samaria. Why? Well, he has an appointment there with the woman at the well. Now, now Samaria was not friendly territory for Jews. The Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. They did not get along. There, there was one of these barriers, one of those Middle East challenges between the nationalities. And, and some of this still, still, still persists today. When, when we were in Israel, when we were leaving, when we got to the airport, we had to go through security. And as the group leader, I'm at the front of the line and I get called up and, and I got asked all the questions. And, and they were pretty pointed and pretty direct. And, and, I'm, and the point, number of the questions were, did we go into any Palestinian territory? 
And he started naming off cities. He said, did you go here? Now, a couple of them we had actually talked about going to, but we knew that we would have to work things out. But they were very pointed. And they wanted to know where our luggage had been that day and if we'd ever left it alone. And I mean, there were a lot of questions. And it was because of that concern. Well, there, there wouldn't have been that kind of problem at this time, but there was a, still a hostility. Now, Rome wouldn't let things get out of hand. But the Jews and the Samaritans, did, they weren't, weren't doing tourist groups together. It wasn't happening. And so Jesus goes into Samaria, and then he sits down beside a well, and he starts a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And in doing this, he shatters the, the social and ethnic barriers. And, and, and beyond that, this was a woman that had an immoral past and present as she's living with a man who's not her husband. She was a sinner. And do you remember where the conversation goes? They start talking about worship. Now, now think of these chapters for a moment. Think of the discussion with Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? A Pharisee, a leader. And what does Jesus talk to him about? You have to get saved. You have to be born again. And he goes to Samaria and he sits down at a well and he's talking to an immoral woman and they talk about worship. Wouldn't we think those are reversed? That let's talk about worship with a Pharisee. And if anybody needs to be born again, it's the Samaritan woman. And what we're seeing is our, our Lord is dealing with both of these. That Jesus' example demonstrated the gospel message is not sectarian. He's calling from every tribe, tongue, people, group, and nation. And he's, he's talking to this woman about worship and getting to her heart need and as he's asked her for water, and he says, if you really knew who you were talking to, you would ask him, you would ask me for water. So you never thirst again. And, and she says, boy, give me this water because I don't want to have to keep coming to this well and face the shame of the town. And he says, go call your husband. And that's where it comes out. Of, she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, you've spoken well. You've had a number of husbands, and the man you're living with isn't your husband. And she says, I think you're a prophet. Let's talk about worship. And that's where the conversation goes. She's trying to deflect, and, and Jesus brings it back. She, he deals with that, says true worship is in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And, and through this, now, she has, she has realized who she's talking to. And she's excited. And so she's gone back into town to, to share the good news about Jesus being there. And it's at this point that the disciples show up. And that's what we find in verse 20, 27. Because he's told her, I am the Messiah. Verse 27, that at this point, his disciples came. And they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you speaking with her? Now, they don't ask, but they're wondering. They, they still have the questions, but they're not asking. And, and so then it says, And the woman then left her water pot. She went her way into the city and said, and said to the men, Come see the man who told me all the things that I've ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. And in the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. In verse 32, And he said to them, I have food to eat 
of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Then he says, "Do Do you not say, There are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say, Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he and he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For this is the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I send you to reap that which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And we see what is taking place. They come, Jesus is talking to this woman, they've got questions they're not asking. She leaves, she runs into town and says, I've met a man who's told me everything I've done. I'm sure there were a lot of men in that town who had questions. I said, we want to find out what's going on here. And now they're coming out of the village. And the disciples are saying, Lord, eat. And what do we see? He said, I've got food that you're not aware of. What was that food? It was serving the Father. Jesus was sustained and motivated by serving the Father. That was what sustained him. It wasn't, oh, I've I've got to take a break for lunch. He said, what is sustaining me is doing the will of the Father. His satisfaction came as he did the will of the Father. You know, there, there is a joy and delight in serving the Lord. When we're doing it with the right attitude and with the right purpose and right motivation, there, there is an excitement and enthusiasm that ought to be in, in our lives. And this is the only way that Christ could illustrate to them the excitement of that was to show the satisfaction of a good meal and the strength that that gives to the body. He said, this is what motivates me, is doing the will of the Father, serving Him. And just as food is needed for the body to properly function, service is what gave pleasure and strength to His spiritual life and should to ours. So do we enjoy serving God? Or do we look for excuses? There's a joy of the sower, but it's dependent on the reaping. Now sometimes we find excuses for not serving, and yet what we see here is that was the motivation for serving. That's what sustains. And so we we read these verses as they're coming out, and Jesus says, look, don't you say there's four months until the harvest? But he said, but look, as they're walking out of the city, he says, Here's the harvest. And he said, you're going to reap even though you didn't sow. And there's going to be joy in that. People are coming out of Samaria to greet him. The the seed was sown in a short time earlier by one woman, the woman who had been at the well. And now the harvest is coming. And and here is a woman who we wouldn't have thought would be the best soul winner. She's got multiple marriages, multiple problems, moral problems, And she has gone, and now people are coming to Jesus. But we see that the the joy of the sower is dependent on reaping. These men are going to reap where they didn't sow. It's going to come in the future. In in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Peter's going to preach, and 3,000 will come to Christ. But Peter isn't the one who sowed. And so the gospel is going forth. The joy of reaping is contingent, or the, of sowing is contingent on reaping, and they, they have joy together. One sows, another reaps. 
And, and so we understand that successful ministry is frequently the result of other people's labors. That we have a responsibility to sow. And some plant, some water, God gives the increase. And we're, we rejoice in that. And, and many of us have had the opportunity, the privilege of, of leading somebody to the Lord. And frankly, all we did was pick the fruit. Somebody else had planted and watered and done the work. And, and we just were the one that the Lord used. And we get to rejoice. And the sowers get to rejoice. And some of the times the sowing, we won't even know the result of that until we get to heaven. But we are to sow. Sharing the gospel, giving a gospel tract taking those opportunities and recognizing the joy of that. But in all of this, we, we have a part in ministry and the privilege of seeing that happen. Bringing people, maybe it's that friend, maybe it's a relative, praying, watering, God gives the increase. Do we know that joy? The disciples, as they've walked with the Lord, we've seen four snapshots in these couple of chapters as they're impressed with the deity, the authority, they're involved in ministry, and they see the blessing of the harvest and how important that is. The father of Charles Thomas Studd came to know the Lord during a revival service with D.L. Moody. And he became concerned for his sons. He had three sons. Charles Thomas C.T. was one of them. His dad was burdened for his salvation. And he would talk with him as he was college age. He was a cricket player in England. He had excelled in the sport. He was a champion. His name was, he was famous in England as an athlete. And one day there was a pastor who had been visiting and CT was going to a cricket match. And as he was going, the pastor asked him, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And he thought, well, it'll get the pastor off my back. I'll just say yes. He said, yes, I believe in him. And then he asked, do you, have you ever trusted him as your personal Savior? Will you be in heaven with him? And he couldn't say yes. And the Lord used that to convict him of his sin and, and bring him to Christ. And, and so he, he had trusted the Lord. He was playing cricket. He was the captain of the, the team at Cambridge University. He was involved in international competition. And then he led his first soul to the Lord. And he said this, I cannot tell you what joy it gave me to lead my first soul to Jesus Christ. I have tasted the, most of the world's pleasures. I don't suppose that there is one thing I have not experienced, but I can tell you that those pleasures were nothing compared to the joy of saving that one soul that it gave me. He, he said this was what excited him. Now, was he just giving a religious talk? No, it changed his focus. And he became burdened for, for the souls of others. He said, I went on working for some time, and then cricket season came around. And I thought, I'm going to go to cricket, the cricket field and get men and there to know the Lord Jesus. Formerly, I had loved cricket as much as any man could have. But when Jesus came into my heart, I found something infinitely better than cricket. My heart no long, was no longer in the game. I wanted to win souls to the Lord. I knew that cricket would not last and honor would not last and nothing in this world would last 
but it was worthwhile living for the world to come. And he went on to be a missionary. He went with Hudson Taylor to China. He ended up in India. He, he saw a sign one day when he was back in, in England. It said, cannibals want missionaries. And he said, I need to go to Africa. His doctor wouldn't approve him to go to Africa. He said, your health isn't such, you can't go. So he said, well, I'm going to go anyway. He went to the mission board. They said, well, if the doctor won't give approval, we won't give approval. And so he went in anyway. And he served in Africa for many, many years. His point was, I want to live for eternity. He's the one who wrote the words, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He was wealthy. He gave away his fortune. He had fame because of the sports. He had loved the sport, but he said there's something more important than playing a game. It's reaching the lost. And he understood the joy of going forth. He loved Christ more than the things of this world. We're his hands, his feet, his mouth. His eyes, his ears, we're here to serve the Lord. We're called to go to the world for the sake of his name. We sing the song at our missions conference. To every nation his glory proclaim. Pray that the spirit wise will open darkened eyes, granting new life to display Jesus' fame. This was the molding of the disciples. Common people, but we too have that same opportunity. Will we serve? Will we go? Will we be used of the Lord? Let's pray together.